Greetings, world geographers. Alas, it is week four of the fall 2020 semester, and I hope that we are making the most out of it. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, I am learning a lot from your feedback on how to make this course better as the semester progresses. A quick little point. In the previous podcast, I made an error of stating that yesterday and tomorrow islands both belong to the United States and that the U.S. is around 55 miles from Russia. That was incorrect, and I apologize for that oversight. Tomorrow Island, or Big Diomede, is owned by Russia, while Little Diomede, Yesterday Island, is owned by the U.S. Therefore, Russia is even closer to American soil, around 2.4 miles. It's about less than running a 5K charity race. I made this note in the summary of the last episode, in case you go back and listen to it. With that out of the way, let's journey forward. The Middle East, or Southwest Asia, will be our main region of focus. Think about which countries you associate with the Middle East. How often do you hear the Middle East come up in conversation or in the news? What ideas and images do you associate with the Middle East? Typically, the Middle East is comprised of three parts. The region takes the shape of a weirdly shaped angel facing westward. The head of the angel is Turkey, with its capital of Ankara. The neck and sternum of the angel comprises the Levant region, small states of Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and the Palestinian territories. The Levant borders the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. The back of the angel is Iraq, with Iran and Afghanistan as the wings. The angel's dress comprises the Arabian Peninsula, which features Saudi Arabia prominently, with a peppering of smaller Persian Gulf countries of Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates on the eastern side. At the bottom of the angel's dress, like shoes, are Yemen and Oman. So there you have it. Turkey is the angel's head, the Levant is the neck and sternum, Iran and Afghanistan as the wings, and the Arabian Peninsula as the dress and shoes. Take a look at a world map and see for yourself. This image, though odd, will help you build your mental map of the Middle East. You might not be familiar with the term Southwest Asia. What might it represent? Southwest Asia is, in fact, another term for the Middle East. It's a synonym. Europeans like to use the term Middle East because the territory exists between Western Europe and Asia. But if you take a look at the map and examine the environment and culture of this region, you might find it peculiar how many ties this area has to the region of Asia. Indeed, it seems more fitting to describe the region as the southwest extension of the Asian continent, rather than identifying it from the standpoint of a European. For the purposes of this podcast, I will use the more familiar term of the Middle East to prevent confusion, peppering in Southwest Asia every once in a while to trigger your memory. Dr. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and was the Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush. By virtue of experience, Dr. Haas knows quite a bit about the Middle East. He mentions three themes that distinguish the Middle East 
from other world regions, religion, energy, and violence. I will expand on each of these themes to give a better sense of the Middle East. Perhaps even, we might learn something we never knew about the region. The first step we must take is to ask the question, what makes the Middle East worth fighting over? In this section, we will talk about the ways in which religious people have become attached to a place, imbuing that place with meaning and significance. The Middle East is a place of pilgrimage for the three major monotheistic religions of the Middle East, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Monotheism means belief in one God, as opposed to multiple gods. Each of these religions derives from a similar storyline, which goes like this. About 4,000 years ago, Abraham has a child with his mistress, Hagar. That son is named Ishmael, from whom Muslims are believed to descend. But then Abraham has another child with his actual wife, Sarah, believed to be unable to have children. Isaac was born, which is believed to have started the lineage for Judaism and Christianity. Islam, which translates to submitting oneself fully to God, holds reverence for many of the prophets that Christianity and Judaism hold sacred, including Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. You will even find these prophets mentioned in Islam's holy book, the Quran. What separates Islam from the others is through its belief that the prophet Muhammad was the final and greatest prophet. Muhammad was born in Saudi Arabia in 570 CE and compiled the Quran. As a geographer, I am fascinated how three religions all originate from a similar narrative, yet go on to develop as distinctive religions in their own right. The Middle East represented the center of the Western world for some time. If you examine some old maps dating between 300 and 1300 Common Era, you'll notice that the world tended to look like a circle with a T inside of it. There was no Google Earth during this time, so these mapmakers did the best they could. The circle represented the ocean, which mapmakers once believed surrounded the world in a perfect O shape. The T was formed by the Mediterranean Sea and the Nile and Don Rivers. East was at the top of the map rather than the north. So Asia occupied the upper portion of this TNO map. Europe occupied the bottom left-hand portion of the map, and Africa to the south on the bottom right. At the center of this TNO map is Jerusalem, the axis mundi of Western spiritual geography. Jerusalem was where Jews, Christians, and Muslims believed that Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac to God in an ultimate test of faith. Muslims believe Mohammed ascended to heaven atop of that rock. Jerusalem continues to be a place of conflict because of its role in the origin stories of multiple religious traditions. One of the most photogenic Middle Eastern landscapes seen from space is the Sinai Peninsula, an Egyptian place just a six-hour drive south from Jerusalem. The climate is dry and cloudless, most of the year, so it's easy to catch a glimpse of the peninsula's arrowhead shape. From a religious standpoint, the Sinai Peninsula represents a key place for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Geographer Joe Hobbs summed up the significance of the Sinai Peninsula. Quote, 
To the west is the land of the Pharaohs from which Moses fled. There is the sea that Moses crossed. Here is Sinai, where his people wandered. To the northeast is a strip of green on the eastern Mediterranean shore, a land of milk and honey. Unquote. Geologists find the Red Sea fascinating, which is nearby the Sinai Peninsula. Not so much about the story of Moses parting its waters, but with the fact that its seafloor is literally parting because tectonic plates are moving apart from each other, causing new rock to emerge from the seafloor. Upon Mount Sinai is where Moses is believed to have received the Ten Commandments from God. Environmental geographers may be intrigued by the fact that the Sinai Peninsula features some of the world's oldest rocks, some of which date between 600 million to 1 billion years old. Coming from Christian and Islamic backgrounds, many of us have already heard these types of religious geographies in one form or another. But have you ever heard of Sufism, the contemplative, mystical offshoot of Islam? Mysticism exists in most large religions and holds that a relationship with the divine can be witnessed directly through meditation, dance, poetry, among other practices. Some of the most beautiful poetry comes from Sufism's founders. Rumi, for instance, was a Sufi poet born in 1207 in present-day Afghanistan and moved to present-day Turkey. Rumi would compose poems aloud and dance in a circle, as though he were spiritually spiraling up towards the heavens. Whirling dervishes made that dance a spiritual practice, spinning around in ornate dresses. Here is one of the poems that I think will touch anyone deeply, regardless of beliefs. What was said to the rose that made it open was said to me here in my chest. What was told the cypress that made it strong and straight? What was whispered to the jasmine, so it is what it is? Whatever made sugarcane sweet? Whatever was said to the inhabitants of the town of Chigil in Turkestan that makes them so handsome? Whatever lets the pomegranate flower blush like a human face, that is being said to be now. I blush. Whatever put eloquence in language, that's happening here. The great warehouse doors open. I fill with gratitude, chewing a piece of sugarcane in love with the one to whom every that belongs. One of my favorite lines from that poem is the first line. What was said to the rose that made it open was said to me here in my chest. What a beautiful way to describe the sense of exhilaration we might feel during special moments of our lives. Born in 1320, a century after Rumi, the great Sufi master Hafiz carried on the tradition of spiritual poems. Hafiz translates to memorizer and is a name given to someone who can recite the Quran by heart. Here's a short poem that Hafiz wrote. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Poems like this one by Hafiz 
invite us into a deeper conversation with the world we inhabit. When we read the works of other cultures, we may become inspired by what inspires them. Though we may not fully comprehend the worldviews of a Sufi poet, a Christian, a Muslim, or a Jew, we appreciate some of the wisdoms they have to offer us. So the Middle East is characterized by religion, but it is also distinctive because of the energy it exports. The world runs on energy. It takes calories for you to read and comprehend what you learn in class. It takes electricity to illuminate the light next to your desk. It takes gasoline to get your car from home to school. Some places like the Middle East are important suppliers of energy. Other than Israel, Innovations and inventive products are few and far between. Most Middle Eastern countries have doubled down on their reserves of oil and gas, which represent the majority of their exports. Saudi Arabia in particular has the second largest oil reserves in the world. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Iran rank among the top four countries containing the world's known gas reserves. States, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Iran, Iraq, in Kuwait, formed the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, which has impacted the global energy market for six decades. Here's a story that gives you a sense of how overdependence on oil and gas can be disastrous for the economy. In the 1970s, the U.S.'s oil demand increased beyond its domestic reserves. So, Americans imported oil and gas from the Middle East. But that did not last. OPEC slapped an oil embargo on the U.S. because of its support of Israel's war with Egypt and Syria. In brief, Egypt and Syria were trying to retain land that Israel had previously seized from them. That embargo stimulated the oil shock of 1973 and 74. With oil and gas in mass shortage, Americans were forced to ration out their fuel. Environmental historian Dr. Mark Fiji told the experience of Norman Reichbach, the owner of a gas station during the embargo. Gasoline suppliers reduced deliveries to Reichbach's gas station by 30%. Demand caused prices to increase. Americans started to pay attention more to nature as their tanks went empty. Getting from point A to point B felt longer and more uncertain. Reichbach's customers began to pressure him in different ways, in hopes of pumping more gas than the law permitted at the time. Some customers cut off their fuel gauge readers so that their tanks appeared emptier. Some customers even offered Reichbach sexual favors in return for gas. Still others would threaten Reichbach, calling his home phone and demanding gasoline. Quarrels over gas turned violent, and this was America just 50 years ago. So what's the lesson here? It makes little sense for a country to double down on one type of energy, one type of export. Alternative forms of energy, such as wind power, solar power, and bioreactors, make a lot of sense when oil shortages and embargoes exist. The Middle East has a lot of power in the global market right now because of its oil and gas. But how will these countries last when the market changes or when the fuel runs out? The COVID-19 pandemic dealt a major blow to Saudi Arabia's reserves. Saudi Aramco 
Saudi Arabia's government-owned oil business, quickly fell out of the spotlight as the world's most valuable country, losing its position in the stock market to Apple. States like the United Arab Emirates are working to diversify their economies in anticipation that the oil boom goes bust in the near future. The third and final theme of the Middle East is violence. The Middle East is a politically charged region. For those who live in the Middle East and those who are implicated by the politics in the region, such as the United States, most countries gained independence after World War II. Since then, the area has been violently contested. Each decade following World War II featured a new major war or conflict. When you hear the following list, there's no need to memorize, you will recognize three major types of conflict come up. The control of territory, control of resources, and the control via religion. In 1948, the Holocaust aftermath motivated many Jewish people to create their own sovereign country in hopes of not enduring such genocide again. The name of the newly established state was Israel, which translates to an active relationship or struggle with God. Existing countries in the Middle East did not approve of the Jewish people, carving a new state out of the existing territory, and many Palestinian peoples living in the region ended up displaced and without their own discernible homeland. In 1956, the countries of Israel, the United Kingdom, and France warred with Egypt over control of the Suez Canal, which is an important narrow waterway, often described as a choke point, where ships can travel between the Mediterranean Seas and the Red Seas without having to dock. To prevent further conflict, the U.S. applied pressure to hand control over the Suez Canal to Egypt. In 1967, six days of fighting led Israel to seize control of the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula, owned by Egypt, Golan Heights, owned by Syria, and East Jerusalem in the West Bank, controlled by Jordan. In 1973, Israel's Arab neighbors unsuccessfully tried to take back their land lost in 1967. A 1979 revolution saw a secular cosmopolitan state of Iran transition to a stricter Islamic state under the new leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini. Though they were neighbors and Islamic, Iran and Iraq rarely got along. Under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, Iraq invaded Iran in 1980, causing an eight-year war. In 1990 through 91, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, which resulted in a U.S.-led fighting lasting seven weeks, which ultimately eventually liberated Kuwait from Iraq. And finally, we have the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, an event which motivated the United States to invade Iraq in 2003. The 19th anniversary of September 11th occurs this week. We now exist in a world where college students were born after the September 11th attacks, in which two hijacked airplanes were flown into the World Trade Center of New York, a third collided into the Pentagon, and a final one crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The word terrorism became part of our vernacular and legitimized 
the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Believed to be harboring cells of Islamic terrorist recruitment, training, and coordination. For those of us who lived through it, we often describe our lives before and after September 11th because the date was so significant in our collective memory. You'll notice two patterns with regard to these dates I just described. First, the creation of Israel really shook up the Middle East. Israelis occupied a profoundly holy land, significant not only to Christians and Jews, but also to Muslims. Second, Iraq and Iran are not allies in any sense of the word. The mere coincidence that they were both Muslim countries living next to each other led American politicians to describe them as part of the axis of evil, an integrated network of radical Islamists. But just as there are many denominations of Christianity, so too are there many subgroups of Islam. Two dominant versions of Islam are Shiite and Sunni, which have historically been at odds with each other, but still other factions exist. There's a saying that when you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, even when that nail may actually be your friend's thumb. Fighting terrorism became the Western world's hammer on the Middle East. And, as Dr. Haas explained, that hammer was, quote, expensive by every measure, unquote, leading to the deaths of more than 4,000 Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. Dr. Alexander Murphy summed it up well, quote, what is termed the Islamic world is in fact riven by deep-seated differences, not just over doctrinal matters related to the succession to the caliphate, which was the original source of the Shiite-Sunni split, but also over cultural practices, modes of livelihood, political ideologies, and nationalist affiliations. Unquote. The big message that the Middle East teaches us is that world regions are complex and thus require complex understandings. Simply glimpsing at a map of the Middle East will not reveal the nuances of cultural differences, government practices, and strategies for peace. Regarding the Middle East, Americans tend to have a double standard. We expect our leaders to make the right decisions, yet we often do not appreciate the Middle East's complexity ourselves. So the leadership tip of the week is to appreciate complexity when studying world regions. We can see this when examining the conflicted relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. The creation of the Israeli state in 1948 caused a violent eviction of many Palestinians living in the area. More territory was seized, borders were installed, and the fight for territory and recognition continues to this day. In 1949, an Israeli commander drew a line on a map in green pencil to distinguish between Israel and its Arab neighbors. That's often described to as the Green Line. Israel broke that border agreement during the Six-Day War of 1967, when it seized control of Egypt's Gaza Strip and Jordan's West Bank and East Jerusalem. Currently, the extent of Israel's control beyond the Green Line varies. Hamas, an Islamist movement, now runs the Gaza Strip. And to travel outside the landlocked West Bank to Israel or elsewhere, Palestinians must obtain a work permit. The Green Line continues to exist in the experiences of Israelis and Palestinians. Artists and filmmakers from both sides 
have documented the artificiality and mutability of such borders. Artist Alban Biosat took a series of photos of a 39-foot green ribbon being draped across a dry landscape, dragged like a kite by a Palestinian child, and woven through the windows of people's homes. The photos are a testament to the idea that political boundaries, the lines we might draw in pencil on a map, do not always solve problems. Rather, they might cause us to dehumanize each other. But nonetheless, we still discover very human, humane moments between these warring groups. On Saturdays, more recently, Israeli soldiers have been known to turn a blind eye to Palestinian families who wish to sneak over to Israel to enjoy the beaches of Tel Aviv. In Israelia and Palestinian film, viewers encounter Romeo and Juliet archetypes, which feature an Israeli and a Palestinian couple falling in love, despite what their families or countries might say or do. Humans are complex, no matter how much we try to simplify political issues. As an American politician, your position on issues in the Middle East could either positively or negatively impact your candidacy to the House of Representatives, the Senate, Supreme Court, Presidency, and so on. Many Westerners would say that issues surrounding the Middle East are important, yet few can locate Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan on a map. In a 2006 poll by National Geographic Society of 510 respondents between 18 and 24 years old, around 75% of them could not locate Iran or Israel on a world map. Six out of 10 participants could not find Iraq or Saudi Arabia. 88% had no idea where Afghanistan was. Yet we constantly hear about these countries in the news and are expected to have strong opinions about what should be done over there. Members of our U.S. military who have deployed to the Middle East may have very different conceptions of the Middle East than political scientists describing the region from afar. For the most part, U.S. interventions in the Middle East have tended to concentrate over fossil fuel resources and fighting against what its leaders describe as religious extremism and acts of terrorism. In December 2019, Army General Mark A. Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, mentioned that the Department of Defense's goal is to continue promoting a secure and stable Middle East, quelling the number of violent extremists, alleviating negative reactions toward the U.S., and contributing a global energy market. Despite these assertions, the U.S. has been progressively withdrawing its influence from the region starting with the Obama administration and carried over by the Trump administration. So if you're an American diplomat, you must understand not only the politics of the place, but how cultures and borders do not always align. That's all I have for this week, everybody. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things.